This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. In a new report, the Goldman Sachs Global Markets Institute finds that a jobs gap exists today between the types of jobs people want and those that are actually available. In no small part, they argue, because the onus of preparing oneself for a new industry falls disproportionately on individual workers who are not well-placed to bear the costs involved. The report goes on to say that, quote, a new approach to risk sharing is needed. To discuss that report, I'm joined today by Steve Strongen, head of Goldman Sachs Research, and Sandra Lawson, director of the Global Markets Institute, the authors of that report. Steve, Sandra, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jake. Glad to be here. Sandra, clearly the idea that technological change affects employment isn't new. Why has it become such a pressing issue today and right now? It certainly isn't a new idea or a new problem. And if you think about the last couple centuries of American history, 200 years ago, farming dominated the economy and the labor force. Almost everybody was involved in farming in some way. Today, only about 2% of the labor force works in farming. There's a bigger population, there's more food, but people are doing different jobs. And so technology has been affecting employment for a very long time. What's different today, I think, is that the pace is faster, thanks to advances in computing power, data processing, sensors. Jobs that were previously sort of off limits to automation are now becoming susceptible to automation. Probably the best example there is the self-driving car, which was a dream in the not-so-distant past and is now a reality. And related to that, secondly, the scope is broader. People are seeing the effects of automation in jobs that were seen as safe before and in their everyday lives in a way that I think they didn't in the past. So in the past, though, innovation may have destroyed some jobs, but it certainly created new jobs as well. So is that happening today? Are the new industries producing jobs that will replace the old ones? New industries are creating new jobs. The problem is that the people who are being displaced from the old jobs often aren't well-suited for the new ones. They've invested a lot of time and energy and money in their existing careers. They've built up a lot of social capital. Suddenly, they're being told 20 or 25 years into this career that they need to switch to something entirely new, something that entires a new investment of money and time and effort that may, in fact, be in a different place in the country. And so this isn't just inconvenient for them, it's expensive. And it's very hard to match up the needs of the new jobs with the people who are being displaced from the old ones. So technology is changing the nature of work. How exactly is that happening, Steve? And what are the types of jobs that are being created? This is part of an ongoing process. As Sandra was already talking about, this has been going on a very long time. We used to think about jobs as doing things, but computers and machinery keep getting better and they can do more and more things. But there's always been a second part of the job, which is the ability to supervise, the ability to organize the factors of production, other people, and to guide them as to what they ought to be doing. And machines have never been good at that. The core of this has always been, if you do a lot of it, it makes sense to invent a machine so that you can do more of it more easily. Everything that's replicable. Everything is replicable. But if it's new, if it's different, if it's the first time, the second time, the third time, that's when you need people. And so it's new businesses, small businesses, inventive businesses where people get engaged. And it's the large super scale businesses where you see computers and machinery begin to dominate. And I think one of the real challenges as a result for public policy has always been, when you talk about jobs programs, you want to create a lot of them. But at heart, if you create a lot of anything, 
you've already invited the machine in where when it's new entrepreneurial inventive that's where humans really have the advantage and always will it's coordinating and dealing with all of those issues being the person who designs the system by which the forklift operates in the warehouse is going to be around for a while. That's absolutely right, but that makes it sound like you're getting more technical. In some cases, it's less technical. You can think about food preparation, where you used to have to master chopping. Right? Now you can use a food processor, and the inventiveness has to go into coming up with Designing a new cookie yeah. that's got 20 ingredients that people want to buy, as opposed to six they don't want to buy. And so it's not really more STEM, more intellectual, more this. It's really more about the understanding what people want, understanding where things are going, understanding what makes things interesting, as opposed to the technical act of doing something over and over and over again. So the forklift operator is now the one deciding what the forklift needs to do, what it's creating, rather than actually operating it himself or herself. So Steve, when we talk about the nature of work, not everyone is geared up to work at a startup or some entrepreneurial activity. How could the work at more day-to-day -day type jobs be affected by technological change? I think that's exactly the right question. And part of what makes this so pervasive is it's affecting every kind of job everywhere. As Sandra was talking about, we can now put sensors on activities we couldn't. Warehouses can almost self-guide. And so very basic jobs are the ones most subject to this. On the other hand, a lot of basic jobs require human interaction, require customizing to the moment, require understanding what the client just asked for. There's a certain immediacy and smallness to life that actually creates many, many job opportunities. It's one of the reasons when you look at some of the newest, biggest internet startups, they're not about big tech processes. They're actually about helping you rent out your house to guests so that ability to deal with a specific location, a specific issue for the individual, is what sits at the heart of the modern job effort. That's what makes jobs work today, as opposed to the giant lines of everyone doing the same thing. So in some ways, the craft movement that we talk a lot about is related to really to technological change. As technology replaces the day-to-day -day work, craft becomes more important. That's right, and that's been the history of work in a very basic way. We used to have to organize large masses of people to do fairly simple tasks. As machines took that over, the people were able to supervise those machines. They were able to coordinate greater activities. And so it's that ability to reallocate to those smaller tasks that really has created the wealth and the prosperity we have. One other way we've thought about this is that people have shifted from actually doing work to supervising and coordinating the inputs into the work so that now people can do much more than they could in the past. And so a lot of jobs have changed quite fundamentally, even as their occupation titles remain the same. So think of a lawyer who used to have to sift through document after document in discovery, trying to find a few key words. Now that's done by a machine. That person is still a lawyer, but the content of the job is very different. So the report describes a basic conundrum, which is that the individual who would benefit from retraining oftentimes doesn't have the right incentives to do so or the risks are too high for that individual to leave their job, retrain new skills at a time when they might be earning money instead. So explain how that problem works and how we fix those incentives. Let's take one step away from the job decision and repose that as advice on your retirement account. 
And I think that makes it easier to understand what going back to school means. So you're at this point in your career. You now have to reinvest your retirement funds. You go to a stockbroker and they tell you, we have the perfect investment for you. We're going to have to put 100% of your money into a single stock. It has a 10-year lockup. And you don't get to change your mind for the entire 10 years. This is the perfect IRA for you. Okay. Very few people would take that advice. Right. But when you go to put that same money into a new set of skills and education and a new location. Betting the farm on your retraining that you're retraining the right kind of skills. That's right. Is exactly the same kind of financial decision. And that's why when you look at the institutional arrangements today, it's so hard for individuals to take that step because they have all the risk. They don't really have the resources. And it's not a one-day or even six-month decision. It's a five- to ten-year decision. Because very often, you have to give up your current location. You have to go to school. You then have to rebuild up the network and other connections to create actual employment. And then, in almost any employment you care to name, you then begin to build the income and client lists, seniority, whatever the particular profession requires. So that that's another five-year process. Even in professions that have quick startups, it can be a 10-year process in others. That's an incredibly big concentrated risk position to ask an individual to take, particularly somebody who's 45 or 50. So in this paper, you talk about this as a classic investment problem. You also discuss the need for a new approach to risk sharing. What do you mean by this, and how would you redistribute those risks? The first thing we have to do is we need to understand the size of that decision. The notion that an individual doing it on their own is probably not reasonable. So we have to find ways of bringing corporations and the government into that risk sharing. We do it as a matter of course without even thinking with young people. Student loans, placement decisions, apprenticeship programs, where other people bear part of the risk. That's an even bigger problem mid-career. The risk is bigger, the time to pay off is shorter, the ability to switch decisions a second time is lower. And yet, for that person trying to seek a second career, we have none of the same assistance. We have to find ways where corporations can bear part of that risk. We have to find ways where the individual gets some income maintenance over that period. And they're probably going to need real-life assistance with the life problems. When you're 20, you're worried about your own tuition. When you're 45, you're worried about your kid's college tuition. But corporations don't necessarily today have the right incentives either because the more advanced that tenure of that worker is, to retrain them doesn't look like a great risk reward for the company to reinvest in that person and retrain them. Well, the risk is that the employee can come, be trained up, get skills, and then walk across the street to a competitor and take the value of the company's investment with the person. The company doesn't actually own the value of its investment in that case. So you have to create some incentives to make it more worthwhile for the company to make that investment. And these can range from things like greater tax credits and tax benefits for training programs, a more structured apprenticeship program so that there's an easy way to slot in older workers, or the idea of a standardized labor contract where the employee agrees to commit to a certain amount of time in the job in exchange for a certain amount of training. And just to have this in sort of a standardized format that people understand and recognize would probably make it easier for people to want to take these jobs and for companies to want to offer them. So what are the potentials to finance those? The pools of money are pretty simple, right? The individual can pay at some level. 
the companies can pay at some level, the private sector can pay, or the government can pay. How does that system look today? What's the right mix of government incentives, and what should it look like in the future? At a very high level, that has a straightforward answer. When you get down to the practical political implications of this, it's not so easy. The broad general answer is this has to be thought of and embedded in the same things that we now think of retirement. The funds that are really available are the things that we now think of that allow you to exist after you're employed. We need to think of those resources as something that can take you through redeployment. But that's going to also require rethinking retirement. So we have 529s to help us save for college. We have IRAs to help us save for retirement. We don't have anything similar that helps us think about lifelong learning or retraining over time. Right. That's right. Essentially, we need to extend those programs so that they cover the middle. But that's going to require rethinking them at the ends. Otherwise, you simply don't have enough money to make it work. Mm -hmm. But you could have tax-advantaged savings accounts for the sort of mid-career retraining that could not only fund the training itself, but also give you income in this time when suddenly your income has dried up. Whereas you know, today, actually, you're penalized if yes, you dip into your savings. Very much so. If it's in a tax-protected account. And that doesn't make sense. Very punitive. Because right. you're investing today so that you can have a longer career and postpone your retirement. Let's talk about the types of retraining. You've talked a lot about rethinking education, re-education, or to build skills people need in the future, but you're not focused, as many commentators are, on STEM. And a lot of people talk about the need for America to up its STEM education and for people to dive deeper there. Why does the education of the future necessitate a more broad-based curriculum? Studying STEM is important, but it doesn't future-proof anybody because those professions will evolve just as rapidly or if not more rapidly than the rest of the employment and the labor force. And so what people really need to learn is how to be adaptable, how to learn new skills later in life, how to work in groups, how to be creative, because the process of working is much more about managing, organizing teams of people to put things together than a single person working on a single project in isolation. And so in a lot of ways, this is about changing the way things are taught rather than the actual subjects themselves, making them more interactive, more real life feel, and more team oriented so that people have these adaptability skills and they're able 20 years on to go back and learn something else. So we used to study, I need to learn how to do this math table these days. I mean, a calculator can do the math for me. Mm -hmm. I need to learn to be able to work with others to solve a problem that has maybe had math at its core, but requires teamwork and a multitude of insights. Right, it's about how you conceptualize the problem and the way to the solution, and how you pull all the inputs together to get to the answer. And it's also important to understand how broad-based that notion is, because it's often too easy to think that's a description of a new business school curriculum. We used to have assembly lines for cars. We now have teams that assemble cars. Mm -hmm. Those teams now put together multiple cars as opposed to a single model. Because that flexibility has become inherent to the modern economy. And so at its core, there's a notion of resiliency that sits at the base of education, not technical skills. Because no matter how you train, no matter what field you train in, Probably within 10 years, you're going to need a new set of skills and a new set of training to do even the same job. And so that requires... You can learn a computer code and five years later it's obsolete. That's right. I started my career programming computers. Unless you go to a museum, you can't find any computers that will run those computer programming languages. 
And even if you go back 10 years, most of the computer languages mm -hmm. that are in the jobs board top 10 didn't exist 10 years ago. So that sense of renewal is core to the modern job market, regardless of the profession you're talking about. And that requires an approach that's all about learning and resiliency and change, not about what we really need is carpenters or what we really need is computer programmers. What we really need is people who can adapt to today's needs. So Steve, are STEM jobs as vulnerable to disruption as other kinds of jobs today? In some ways, they're more vulnerable. The core of whether a job is vulnerable or not is how easily measured its output is and how often it's done, how well structured it is. What you need to automate a job is data. So the more it's done and the more clearly defined it is and the more data about it, the easier it is to automate. The newer it is, the more adaptive it is, the more it has to change with circumstance, the more you can't automate it. Where people dominate is new, different, and adaptive. And, and that goes to the heart of why teaching people how to learn is critical, because that's the thing people do better. People can do something that's never been done before. Where machines win is things that have been done five million times before. And it's people who think up the new needs that people didn't realize that they had. So people think of the needs, people create the ways to fill those needs. Over time, you get the data, things are done at scale, you can automate it. But it's always that novelty, that invention and innovation that comes from the person, not from the yeah. machine. Five, 10 years ago, I didn't know that I needed the ability to press a button on my phone and have a car appear right exactly. where I was. So. so this report proposes a number of additional policies that would help shift the burden of job retraining away from the individual and could help reduce the jobs gap. Explain how those policies might work. Well, go back to the investment problem. There's a couple things you need to make it easier to invest in people. The first, which is perhaps the single most basic component of modern finance, is diversification. One person investing in one person as their only investment is the toughest possible way to make this work. So bringing the employer into that equation, bringing the government into that equation, and creating a sort of insurance market become critical to making that work. Now, when you're talking about people as opposed to events, those words all mean something slightly different than they do in finance. So it means a job training program where the company is bearing a chunk of the tuition. It means a situation where if it doesn't work, sort of like no-fault divorce, they can separate without a legal problem. But if it does work, a certain amount of services do. It means situations and where- And currently that happens, but it's relatively small and it's relatively bespoke in terms of firms providing a little bit of money for someone to go retrain themselves. But there's no industry-wide standard in that space. And in most cases, if you talk to the companies about those programs, they're more retention tools than they are training programs. There's an implicit assumption there's a fair chance on completion of training, the person may leave. But while but they're But if you training, pay to someone to go to school for five years, they're probably going to stick with mm -hmm. you for five, five years. Five years. Right. That's right. One that's cited most often is the German apprenticeship program but that's in manufacturing and very classic sort of narrow jobs. We need a broader notion of that that works for the modern corporation and the service corporation. The other thing we need to do is rethink retirement accounts so they're drawable for these life moments. They need to be life accounts as opposed to retirement accounts. From both standpoints, we as a society are having difficulty with the notion that retirement isn't what it meant in the 1960s. We're learning that people actually need to stay active later in life we're also beginning to realize that they need gaps in the middle of their lives to retrain and redeploy their skills. And so we need to rethink those programs so that they're adaptable to life 
as opposed to end of life. How might the onset of the sharing economy, or what you call in the report the freelance economy, change the way we think about how people retrain for work? Well, the freelance economy is extremely helpful as a source of income to tide you over during these transition periods. Supplemental income, it draws on assets that people already have, whether it's a spare room in their house or their driving skills or their cooking skills. It allows people to monetize things that couldn't be monetized before. And from an income standpoint, that's extremely helpful. But as you say, it doesn't go to the benefits. And so there needs to be some rethinking of this very strict line between employee and independent contractor so that people have the ability to develop their own pensions pools, that they have the ability to get health care, and you can have the flexibility to move between a full-time job, a part-time job, a freelance economy job without these very rigid lines that say some people have access to a lot of benefits, but other people don't have any. So a lot of our current employment law is based on the idea of full-time workers, part-time workers, contract workers. How did all these legal divisions arise? What were they designed to do, and why do they need to change today? So the core of them, and this is actually a deep problem, the core of them was retention. These were programs that were designed to make sure that people stayed with their employer and made it hard to leave. And in an economy where transitions are a necessary component, having your benefits tied into things that are retention programs is going to create an inherent conflict. And it's actually a bigger change. You really need to think about words like portability much more clearly. If you look at the U.S. system, there's a tendency to believe the problem is that we tie this to employer. But if you take a look at Europe, there the problem is you tied it to occupation. Nurses have a pension plan that's separate from manufacturing workers. An economy where people move across things, it either needs to be tied to the individual, which may not be practical, or it needs to be portable from employer to employer and occupation to occupation. And portability rules can be written, but that becomes the key. Are there any areas where we're seeing innovation in this space that seems to hold promise for the new economy? Actually, we've seen lots of innovation in financial programs in the last period. The end of the old defined benefits plan, which was a classic retention, and having it replaced by defined contribution, which has clear portability, is a great example of how you rethink programs. And so you take your pension with you. You can take your pension with you. Mm -hmm. So we can do that today. Now, you ended up with a different kind of pension. Now, the interesting thing about that, and this goes to this life plan as opposed to retirement plan, the defined contribution plan works a lot better when you go to generalize it to life circumstance and beyond just retirement as opposed to the old retention programs. We need ways of thinking about how to do health plans in the same way and the other key benefits so that they also become portable in some reasonable fashion. And there's gap programs that work for people with extended gaps while they reinvest. So in reading this paper, I was struck by its optimistic tone. A lot of times we hear about displaced workers and skills gap. It seems like a zero-sum game. Why are you optimistic about how individuals can surmount and meet the challenges of these new technologies and economy? I think one reason for optimism is what we talked about in the very beginning, why people are so focused on this issue right now. The fact that a technological change and innovation affects everybody across the political spectrum and the social spectrum means that there is a lot of focus on 
finding new approaches to bear the risk and to help people adapt. It can't just be isolated to one segment of society. And so you have a lot of effort really focused on coming up with solutions in a way that you probably didn't in the past. One of the other aspects of today's public debate is in the labor markets, we're having this moment of fear and crystallization because of the onslaught of technology. And the macroeconomic productivity discussion, we have people arguing there's no longer any technological progress. And that's the reason there's no productivity gains. What is actually happening is that technology is becoming so pervasive and is changing so rapidly that this is moving from sort of block changes that are clearly defined to a process of continuous evolution where anyone's job is going to evolve. That commonality makes it easier to generate political action. And the fact that it's a series of steps as opposed to one or two giant steps also makes it much easier to make adjustments too. I think the other thing that makes us optimistic is a new understanding of the power of that technology. As we get to watch this real time, it becomes clearer and clearer this has actually been about the enabling of people to do new and interesting things. That it really is a process of where the old, repetitive, data-driven gets put in the back seat and driven by the machines, and the front seat is all about the new and the interesting. And that's true whether you're talking about farms, factories, service jobs or professional jobs. All of them are going through that same process where individuals are getting to focus on more interesting things, new things, accomplish more in a day, in an hour than they used to be able to do. Those skills are more transferable from topic to topic. There's an incredible influx of new activities and new things to do, but that creates an incredible challenge to reallocate, redeploy people to those new functions. And we need to evolve our institutions and our systems to allow them to make those transitions. Early in the paper, we make the point that when you look at society, you sometimes think this is technology sort of filling up all available space and displacing people. But in truth, when you look at it more closely, what it is is a situation where relative to the amount of machines and software or technology and capital, we have fewer and fewer people available to coordinate and control the economy. We're more short labor than long labor, to use the financial terms. We need people. It's this interesting thing, right? We're always short jobs, and we're always short people for the jobs. Those are two constant refrains in the economy. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying is, yes, they are constant refrains. And what we need to do is change the system so that we're better at matching the people who don't have the jobs to the jobs that don't have people. So Sandra, just to close it out, we talked about your optimism. Are you optimistic that we get our hands on this as a society, as government and companies and individuals can sort this out in relatively short order, or are we going to be finding our way through this for a long time? I am optimistic, but I think it's a process and it won't necessarily all be resolved in a short while. It's going to go on for a long time as new challenges come up. But the focus, the political and social focus on the need to rethink the systems, need to rethink the institutions and come up with creative ways of helping people adapt to a very different labor force than one they started out in, that gives me optimism because it's not a problem to be shunted aside, it's something that people are really working on now. Steve, Sandra, thank you for joining us today. Great conversation. Thank, thank you. you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on September 7th, 2016.
All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.